immersive arts episode. And today we're discussing the creative and technical processes that go into creating immersive work in the art sector, primarily through augmented reality. Today I'll be talking to fashion designer and academic C.V. James, fashion designer and co-founder of the African Fashion Research Institute, Lesiba Mabitela, and game developer and performer Luke Draper. This project has been realized as part of the creative hustles with the Basa Cultural Producer Producers presented by Business and Art South Africa. Hashtag Common Purpose Essay, hashtag Manchester International Festival, and supported by South African Arts Creative Economy. So my name is Ian Mangenga, and I will be your beautiful, lovely host. <laughs> and I am um, a tech uh, designer myself, and I'm very happy to be having this conversation. This is something I'm thoroughly passionate about, and I'm uh, most especially excited to be talking to these individuals. So without wasting any further time, let's get into it. And um, I would like each of the speakers to start by introducing themselves and just giving us a deep dive into who they are, what they do, and how they got into the space they're working in. And ladies first, I will start with Sylvia James. Girl, throw people under the bus like that. <laughs> So, uh, so my name is Vera James, um, and my background. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm a researcher now. Don't like to go by the fashion designer title, um, but I used to be a fashion designer, menswear in particular. Loved it. Got my BA at Lysoft for fashion. Um, yeah, and now I'm into the research side of the fashion industry and trying to articulate fashion in a written ways, mostly Tosa fashions, Tosa thinking, and playing around with those ideas. Um, yeah, I think that is the introduction. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about your focus in, uh, in the Tosa aspect of things, but right now let's go to Luke. Sure, hi, thanks Ian. Um, so, yeah, as mentioned in my bio, it always is this weird one where it's like a game developer forward slash performer. Um, but I studied an arts degree. Um, I studied performing in visual arts. And then the way that I got into working in AR was kind of a conversation that I had with my brother where we talked about, we wanted to talk about like the games that we enjoyed and what we played and what we had fun with. But then we kind of linked it all the way back around to, well, when, are the, when do we get new and interesting mechanics and when do we get new and interesting storylines and, and, and characters and how do we pull from that? You kind of have the storytelling in, in the arts and that's how I became a game developer is developing games with cool and interesting characters. Sometimes it's the funny part of the game. It's the selling point. And then one day he was like, there's this thing called augmented reality and I think it's going to bring all those cool little jokes and gimmicks that we saw in, uh, in anime and cartoons growing up. And we can do that now. And I was like, I'm pretty sure the technology exists. And then that's how I kind of fell into this. Uh, then I was like, okay, cool. Well, if I've got an arts degree and my circle is in arts, I now have more of a technical understanding. And I wanted to see how I can use these new and immersive technologies in the art world and see how I can kind of bridge um, technology and the arts. That's kind of my tagline as a, as a person. How do I bridge art and tech so that's how I'm here nice I also have a bunch of questions for you um 
But lastly, let's move over to Lesiba. Can you tell us a bit about yourself? So yeah, I'm an interdisciplinary artist. Um, and I guess the interdisciplinary part, maybe the most specific element of it is in performance art. But I have kind of done a lot of work. I've worked with 360 cameras in one of my performances. And quite recently I used AR to develop a program with a very close mate of mine called Boto. It kind of looks as Boto as a philosophy, but looks at how uh, that philosophy can inform more sustainable fashion practices, but also kind of pushing a decolonial sort of way of looking at fashion as a whole, but also the sustainability sort of process. Other than that, I also kind of dabble in a little bit of fashion academia through an organization that I co-found, but also work with CVUA in uh, called AFRI, so it's the African Fashion Research Institute. And we're basically using digital as a way to bridge the gaps uh, left behind by colonialism and kind of bring a more critical discourse to fashion on the continent. Thank you. Thank you, Lesiba. Wow, we have such diverse ideas, but I see there's like stronger leanings in the fashion side of things. So don't mind me if if I tend to draw a lot on, uh, on, on the fashion side of things. But I'll start with Luke. You know, when we think of immersive technologies, we can kind of almost say that if you have been a gamer or you've been involved in the gaming world, you were in the front line augmented realities and just extended realities. I know you studied a BA, but I'm mostly interested in how do you find, how did you find your transition into becoming a developer? You know, I think it would have been easier for you because this is something you you were interested in. So how is that transition going from a consumer to a creator? And what are some of the developments that you are, you, you are noticing on the African continent when it comes to gaming or maybe even our limitations? Yeah, sure. I think the the one thing that we're kind of dealing with, with anything that's immersive using um, augmented reality as a, as a through line, there's always this, pro- this problem that other countries are new to deal with. You know, we can't work on the assumption of everybody has a smart mobile phone. Everybody has the latest mobile phone. Everybody has Wi-Fi connectivity, everybody has electricity. So there's already that. Um, so even the idea of um, how I became a developer was just learning of, of YouTube. But this idea that everybody has access to to these same tutorials is is not something that you can say in, in South African context. What is great <laughs> is this kind of becoming more and more a, a push towards that. I think smartphone penetration is at the highest that we've got in South Africa we're getting to a point where a lot more things are accessible, where you can learn of everything from YouTube or from Google. And I think that's kind of becoming a bit of the norm now. I think in the arts industry, we'd always say, if you don't have a uh, like a qualification, what you can do is come with a portfolio, um, proof that you can do the work and that you can deliver. And I think now in the tech space, especially dealing with different recruiters, they're looking towards that as well now. They're not necessarily saying a four-year degree is a barrier to entry especially in these very like niche fields like immersive tech, which hasn't been around for long. Now they're saying, okay, can you prove that if we give you the, the product that you can deliver it? And that's a good way to kind of break into the market is have a, a proof of a body of work. Because, yeah, I think uh, this idea of, and that was the one thing I tried to stay away from is if somebody's like, well, do you have a four-year computer degree? I'm like, well, if that's a barrier to entry, then 
I'm already out of the game. So let's just be broad and kind of be bold with trying to do these very like niche um, tech kind of choices because I don't think anyone has specifically asked for augmented reality in art, in fashion. It's kind of taken people saying, well, this is what I'm passionate about. Let me try to pursue it in a personal capacity and try to find the people who are interested uh, beyond that. You draw on a very important uh, issue there, access to devices. I want you to think about what are some of the ways we can expand access. And um, I'll also draw this to the work that uh, Sevira does. You work as a researcher with a particular focus on Kosa Ataya. What are some of the challenges that you're you're experiencing in your line of work around access, especially like access to the concepts that you're talking about? Can you unpack that a little bit? So thank you, Ian, for the question. So I want to clarify, it's not more Kosa attire that I'm invested in. I think it's Ubu Kosa in general. The culture, the people, the sensitivities of Bukosa, you know, the way our older mothers sit with Inana, where the pipe as they're smoking it, it's all those little nuances that I'm quite invested in. So to go to the question of access, I think that the greatest difficulty has been as a post-apartheid person in this country, it's been it's been about recognizing how how limited I am actually in understanding who I am first before I even go looking for the information. As much as, yes, we've got our parents who speak Iskosa to us and they'll tell us about our immediate family histories, but really understanding the the depth of history to our clan names and stuff like that, that and that's still the immediate home ground research. That's always the toughest thing that I've experienced so far. And then just realizing that there are gems of written texts, academic texts around our histories, our thinkings, but they just require a lot of hunting. And then of course, we've got institutions, I won't mention names, that have these written texts behind paywalls. And and when you think about who the Kosa people are, for example, in terms of their histories, availability of those histories, information itself. You want to start troubling this idea of local and international institutions having this information behind a paywall. Who are they keeping it for, right? If we are the ones lacking this information today and we're wanting to access it in order to design from it and to rethink it, shouldn't it be open? So I think I think that's been my greatest battle is just like trying to cross divide and maybe being a little bit renegade. So almost like stealing or hijacking the information, you know, a little bit of a what's this a Robin Hood when it comes to collecting the information. Because like I'm saying, I feel like those institutions can do without always being credited and more crediting the person who wrote the work. So it's been that sort of like a weird journey of discovering and breaking rules a little bit, which I feel is valid, but that's me being a renegade. I love that. I love that. I also work in the space of making inaccessible information more accessible, you know, and I find it so counterproductive how knowledge is supposed to be an emancipator of communities but yet we need money to access it. Something that it's like you need money 
you need education to get money, right? But at the same time, you also need money to get education. It's just like a vicious cycle of what came first, the egg or the chicken, the chicken or the egg, you know? Yeah. Uh, you don't know how to go about it. But I love the work that you do. And I'll also link it back to some of the stuff that Luke is doing around access to games, especially in the in, in, in the tech space. But before we get to that, I want to cross over to Lesiba. You speak about decolonial fashion. I find that to be such an interesting concept, especially when we look at what globalization has done to us. We at we are at the peak of of imperialism. You know, we don't even know. Like, there's some countries in Africa actually whose traditional attires, I don't know. I think I was having this conversation with a Zimbabwean friend of mine and an and, and Angolan friend. I was like, what is your guys' traditional attire? I have never seen it. I can't even begin to imagine it. Can you share a little bit about how you're using your work to possibly retrace some of those lost attires or even talk us through some of the work that you've done, the successes you have experienced? Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a whole big mountain, eh? <laughs> I guess it's maybe choosing a starting point is that word that you use, attire. The idea that we take many of these terms and we call them taxonomies for granted. What does an attire mean? How is attire worn? And uh, does it all attire have two sleeves? So it's it's about understanding how deeply entrenched coloniality is in our everyday existence, in whatever we do. And the fact that we have pockets, the fact that post a certain time, anything that was adorned on the body was not considered fashion. Yet after a particular time, this is what's considered as fashion or that we have a father of fashion you know, uh, Charles Frederick Worth. I guess what decoloniality looks at is moving away from this idea that there's a homogenous idea of histories associated to attire, to the way thing, people wear things, and to what we deem is fashion. So the work that I'm kind of looking at, and maybe more specifically through the project that I did with Debs uh, called Botu, is looking at the fact that for a long time, and maybe as a design student, I had been taught to, to, to make clothes a specific way. And I think CV also is very aware of the metric pattern system. Um, and along with that, part of the decolonial project is that the project of colonialism is intrinsically linked to the project of capitalism. And so by understanding that, you understand all the industries that are surrounding that which is said to be modern invention. Boto, the idea, as I mentioned, we are so used to this one idea, form follows function, which is attributed to the West. And in that way, we make clothes. So every, everything that we do in terms of design, maybe aesthetically, now fall, follows some form of a function, maybe even before like Corbusier and the likes, there was some sort of aesthetic choices that were made because of the king, because it's royal, because of a certain region in Europe. But before then, what, or rather what we tend to do, or what the world of uh, the machine of colonialism has done, has kind of 
put itself above all other forms of invention. And this includes all other philosophies that may have been there before any introduction uh, of colonialism, which its legacy is unfortunately one of violence. So essentially what we're doing with Boto is looking at a Japanese concept, which I've traditionally worked with quite for a long time called Ma, which looks at the, you know, the, the, the negative spaces outside and inside of the body, and therefore doesn't necessarily favor form-fitting clothes, but looks at drapery as a form of clothing. But in my application, it's also a form of sustainability, because the idea is that the more fabric that you use, the more that you, the, the less you throw away. But I've also linked that with this idea of how closely and aesthetically similar are, you know, the Japanese way of wearing or the concept of ma or the way of wearing clothes or the idea and expressions of drapery. How close is that to Western African forms of dress? And by in part, an extension to that theory is, is there relevance in connecting the Ghanaian kente cloth, how it's worn, the application of drapery with um, African-American hip-hop style in terms of the sagging of the pants, which is a long convoluted way of, of, you know, me saying that somehow there is some sort of spiritual connectivity, which speaks to the idea of Botu. Also, I would even say, uh, with the Bhutu, we were expressing this idea of reincarnation as a form of sustainability. So within the idea of these patterns that I make my clothes from, you know, if I'm going to show that this actually saves material, how about we put the metric pattern that we were taught about in school on that um, that I work with so that at a later stage, stage you can cut it out and re-give and give it a longer life so give it a new life so the concept of reincarnation forms itself within this pattern systems or these multiple pattern systems which are brought together by Boto, which is one or it's, it's a concept that's based on respect for one another and if we understood it you know in contrast to this idea of colonialism it doesn't see itself as one being better than the other. The idea is that it's a philosophy that brings together all aspects or all knowledges of the world to kind of see whether there's a possibility of a better outcome. And that's basically where I think where my practice is based. Essentially, a lot of colonized uh, people or countries or societies have hinged on this idea of decoloniality, as a form of, you know, as some sort of philosophy or text or thinking or a movement that moves them almost closer to their former selves, in a sense. Um, and that has been the best option now, until now. It's almost like capitalism was the best option since the feudal system until now. So my idea is how do we, as Africans, combine or come together under a different um, philosophy idea of liberation that is not aligned to coloniality as well. But obviously, decoloniality is the foundation um, because for me, I, th I don't think I would have gotten to this point of Boto without um, that entry point. I remember, so I was there when you when you launched that whole project from the 
design features lag. And it was like this website where you could have an AR model of the outfit life size in front of you, all accessed via websites. And then you had the plans there as well. And I bring it up so often when I talk about the work that you do, the one thing I always say is something that you touched on your presentation when you presented the whole project was how do you explain African design without using color? And it's the idea of like the print and the cuts. And then when everyone's like, they pause and they go, yeah, you're right. How does that look? And I'm like, well, there's a website for that with an AR model. <laughs> I was so chuffed when you pitched that. I was like, man, this is this is cool. Like this is fashion and tech and this is 100% what I'm into, which I suppose is why we're always talking, right? <laughs> I think that's perfect. And I think maybe I should have opened with that, Luke. Like for a long time, fashion or African fashion, from what I've been told, is print or bright, bright colors. And it's like, you know, once you take that away, what do you have left? And you just have a couple of square shapes and pieces on, you know, on, on, a, on a piece of paper. And it's about making people understand that bit, you know, that we are not talking about the fabric only, but it's about the fact that, you know, we have been taught to make clothes a certain way. I mean, Lee Erdelkut talks about how fashion in the past used to make you walk a different way. Whereas now we don't even have that aspect. But not to say that that's the only thing to think about when we think about fashion or that I need to quote someone from the Netherlands. But it's it, it makes you realize things that we take for granted on a daily basis that, you know, may have shifted how we understand or wear clothes had coloniality not been a factor. And maybe not even coloniality because coloniality is widespread but maybe coloniality on such an industrial level as it was carried out on the continent. Wow. Wow. That is a mouthful, hey? And I especially love how you're taking such an abstract and intensive such as Butu and making it physical. You know, you're taking something that exists only in our minds or mythology and it's almost as if I can wear it and show up to different spaces in it. And I want to link this to the work that Luke does. A part of me feels like, first of all, I love play. I, I think play is such an important thing. It's, it's an important learning space. And it's, it's said that as you grow older, societies and adult thinking, if, if I may call, call it that, puts limitations on our imaginations and stops us from playing and discovering the world. Because I think play is such an important place to discover ourselves, learn more about the world, be inquisitive and just expand our imagination. And something makes me feel like when it comes to uh, Indigenous gaming, uh, just linking it back to this decolonial thought that Lesiva does and this indigenous work that Sivue is engaged in. I like to believe that when it comes to um, African people, nothing just happens out of luck. Everything is tied to a bigger cause, you know. So even the games that, that we play, I think there's always a lesson 
beyond the loser whether you win the game itself the act of playing that to a bigger moral um teaching when we think of gaming today like gt5 gt whatever fifa it's always about like scoring and 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 so yeah i want to know from you luke like have are these some of are these some concepts that you've thought about and if not uh are there specific links that you can see in how gaming in in the extended reality can teach society new ways of relating with one another that's my first question and the second question is do you think there's a space for indigenous games in this extended reality world how do you see indigenous games existing and are there any people you know working in that space yes um so what is interesting and what is if you had to kind of change this like i suppose western way of thinking is firstly Nothing is new under the sun. So archetypes have always existed. So if you want to lean more on like young or any kind of psychological system, you're like, okay, there's always a hero, there's always a villain, there's moral at the end of the story. You have damsels in distress, you have uh, mentors, um, teachers, and these archetypes exist in storytelling. And the best part to kind of look at that is something that uh, Sviwe and Lesiba both said in mentioning like what dictates their journey forward they've all mentioned oh so culturally speaking there's storytelling there's a background there's history to learn from and you'll find that by and large there's almost this framework for storytelling and that exists in play as well and and in design as well and you'll find that you just look back and you're like okay cool i'm not coming up with this if i had to tell you well there's a hero he gets challenged by a villain and at the end of the day he learns his own self-worth through whatever challenges that would come what may you'll see everyone go oh that's a hero's journey we have something like that in my culture it can be as i telling uh, the spider or every kind of culture has its own kind of uh, story that you tell around the campfire and it's one of those things that you're just like it's not to say that just because something like disney princesses are the most famous doesn't mean that you can't get interesting stories elsewhere it's just always interesting because like, I think it's one of those things where when you're working with immersive tech, because there's so many different ways to kind of deal with it, how to approach it. Nobody can really tell you that you're doing it wrong. Like when I've, uh, when I've interacted with Lesiba's uh, work, it's all been like web-based. So you built a website and then there you go. And a lot of the work that I've done uh, in the AR space have been like with Instagram filters. So it's not a website, it's just utilizing what's already there. And no one has ever turned around to me and said, well, there's, that's not just a technical way to do it. You can't do it that way. Just like how if you're doing working with games now, nobody's like, okay, cool. Well, you have to follow this formula, be it marketing or the design or the development of it. And it just kind of echoes something that um, like Lesiba and Sviwe um, have said is that you kind of look back at this amazing body of work from different cultures, from, from stories that aren't necessarily as common to you as they are to some people in other regions. And you're like, oh, okay, cool. Like there's there's, there's actually like a, a case study and a proof of work for why this can be successful that kind of translates across cultures if you just kind of have that respect and to, to learn from it. So even in, in that, that immersive space, I 100% think it has a space for it. But I also think that when you talk about play as, as grownups now, it's also uh, kind of loose and fluid enough to not say, well, these are the rules. You ha- there has to be a winner and a loser in the way of playing this game. It's like, well, no, it can, they're just like, there's no winner or loser in storytelling. Sometimes it's just entertainment and you just make sure that if they at the end of it is to get a moral, they understand the moral or the lessons to learn a lesson or 
sometimes it's bonding and community. There is no, no one way of doing things, especially in emerging tech. And then I, I think this, the next question I'm going to throw at both Sevilla and Lucyba. I draw a lot of similarities between the work that you do. And last night I actually slept at 2 a.m. and I was reading like various articles on the Black luxury movement. And I researched that because I saw some 18-year-old saying, on Twitter saying she prefers a life of luxury. And I was like, wow, when I was 18, wow, I don't even, I, I wasn't even thinking of luxury, you know? So that's when I got into this deep dive of just like, let's, let me look into this luxury movement and, and, and. And some of the points that came up was that firstly, it's the world that, that decides what is luxury and what is not luxury. And most of the time, not most of the time, from time immemorial, luxury is a concept that has been associated mostly with the West and never with African designers or anything from Africa. Being being creators that are working in the space where we're trying to give a new esteem to African ideologies or attires or whatever you would like to call them in, in your line of work. How do you think the work you're currently doing can shift the narrative on what is luxury and what is not? Because I do think there's a lot of luxury that comes from South Africa, or not South Africa, that comes from the continent. But it's just, like you said, Lesiba earlier, you know, like imperialism, capitalism right now is always hijacking all those rewards. And it's so easy for us to forget that luxury is something that we can create. We decide what what is luxury and what isn't. But so often we like it's difficult for us to associate anything that comes from Africa as luxury. So what's your take on that? I'm throwing it at either one of you. So I mean, I would I think the mere fact that you know there's attempts to write about the fashions from the long past, long past being, you know, about Kosa in the 1800s and stuff like that, to start bringing in context or even how he, he is taking, you know, his current education, it comes from the Western background, his, his more formal education, but he's going backwards in trying to excavate history and trying to make different connections to it. So there's the, so there's the academic, the theoretic, bringing the, the practical into one place and kind of messing with the world to construct something new. I think that's beginning to form a foundation for new definitions of luxury. You know, when you, a very lovely and simple example as well of a designer who is giving African luxury one new language, potentially giving African luxury some form of education to it is Tebe. With every collection, he's doing something that European designers have done for centuries, is taking from the lower classes and presenting what is lower class lifestyle thinking and all of that to the high class. And so by doing that, he's disrupted our, and when I say our, I mean internally from the continent first, he's disrupted our own notions of what we've considered to be luxury. He's gotten us to revalue 
the things that we disregard because the West told us that that as a form of life, that every day, that basic, more mundane life wasn't as luxurious as it should be. And so I think with all these different personalities, these different makers and thinkers working in tandem at this high-speed pace, I think, it's not even slow anymore, thanks to technology. I mean, social media makes information move in seconds. We are bending those ideas of what luxury can be. We're beginning to create our own envy from the inside, as opposed to the outside being the source of creating envy. And you might want to say, well, Tebe had to win the LVMH prize in order for the recognition to really come to him. But if you've tracked Tebe's career long enough, and fortunately for me, I've been his friend since design school, I'll tell you that Tebe's recognition has always been first here at home. It might not have been as big, but, and before Tebe, there was Rich. There's been this momentum to reconsider ourselves. And I think the post-apartheid creative is the one who is really trying to dig deeply in reconstructing these ideas so that we can, we can all begin to revalue ourselves as opposed to waiting for something, someone, other spaces to value us so that we can see this imagined value. Because it's imagined when it comes from someone else. Because I feel like if we're creating it, it it's more tactile in that way. Lesiba? Yeah, maybe my provocation comes from the space of delinking the word luxury from West or from the North or proximity to whiteness. And I think that's something that for a long time or for for many people of color or people who are doing well in life, specifically when you think about it in the Southern African region, that proximity to a white European lifestyle is often the definition of luxury. Even for an example, for, take for an example, I followed this one um, Instagram program called I Am Hamamat. Recently, I think she started making shea butter, which for me, and you can see the process of the shea butter. You can see how long it takes to be made. You can see what benefits it gives you. That in itself should be deemed as a luxury. But it depends on, you know, what prism we're looking at items through because somewhat how she packages that shea butter makes it look luxurious as opposed to it being the sheer butter itself being luxurious. But then it's also, you know, we're putting ourselves into an even deeper wormhole when if something is as is so easily accessible, and I assume sheer butter is, is probably easily accessible maybe to the people of that community, does that then define it as being not luxurious. So it's how do we align certain acts, products, things to, you know, exclusivity? I think that's in many ways, you know, one aspect of of luxury that I'm seeing. But then also, you know, we're conflating so many conversations around luxury, but, you know, we're also talking about representation because what you're saying is, we don't see enough black skin tones in a magazine or in an industry that defines 
luxury as we have come to know it post-colonialism. And and this is what we need to kind of have a deeper understanding of. Is it when we say black luxury, are we meaning black people doing white things? Or are we meaning let us redefine what luxury means to us and where the luxury actually is important. Uh, I think that's a very interesting, that's a really uh, pertinent question as well in terms of, you know, especially when we talk about the sustainability thing, there's multiple ways that people are trying to address the issue of sustainability or convince us to make the, 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 the switch into sustainable lifestyles. One of the arguments are, Invest in sustainably made clothes because they'll last longer. But when you kind of see it from a perspective of Africa, when you know the designer, it's immediately translated as not luxurious. We're, we're so used to this idea of not knowing the designer as luxury because our idea of couture or handmade things is smang smang, smang mang's garage you know, and a few sewing machines. And sometimes he does like alterations for some people or it's wedding dresses in shresh rare fabric. So we also have to kind of think about what it means or what it says about us and our ability to name things for ourselves and our ability to theorize things for ourselves or rather our ability to define things for ourselves, define it in a way that doesn't necessarily align with what we've been told is luxury. Because, you know, in many ways, in bringing back to maybe Luke, when we talk about gaming and we talk about FIFA, at one point, FIFA was a luxury, man. I, I won my first PlayStation, and that's how I got introduced into that space um, from a place of privilege as well, because I had the television to watch SABC1, to watch, what is it, YoTV, to have been exposed to Oreos for the first time, and then I had to name the dog, and then I named it, and then I got, and it was a Bruno. I named it Bruno, which was very much the whitest sort of name that you can give a dog, and therefore it won me that sort of prize. To, you know, Dota coming onto, like, the scene for the first time, and that automatically meant my computer didn't qualify because I didn't have the internet. It's, it's also this idea of how do we define what luxury means? And that's maybe where I'm coming from um, with my work. In thinking about how we wear clothes, um, you're also thinking how you experience luxuries. I was just, I just wrote in the chat how you were reminding me of, of um, you know, when Black Diamonds were the hottest naming word for the rising I don't even know how to name them upper middle class black folks how that emergence made us start to go like ooh black luxury already it had started there but when you began to examine like the lifestyles and what was being pushed forward it's exactly as you're saying like the gaze itself was still reflecting whiteness it was still it was still mirroring colonial ideas of luxury and so black diamond you you then wanted to question even that title and you wanted to dig deeper and kind of go well you know mining industry and diamonds do we really want to call black people black diamonds you know do does anyone want to investigate in what that means but we kind of all on a on a popular culture level we just 
grabbed the clickbait aspect of what the titling, the naming said to us. And it just still fed this, this consumption of another's view as opposed to our own view of self and how we wish to define ourselves. So, yeah, that was the only thing I, I wanted to add to, to your comments. Cross over to blood diamond, black diamond, blood, blood diamond. Yeah, I was like, we need, we need, to, we need to articulate that word very clearly: black diamond, blood diamond. Black I was like, diamond. <laughs> I've got the writing in front of me. I'm like, ah, I can see that. So I was like, I hope everybody's hearing the same thing. <laughs> so yeah, speaking about luxury, you know, and um, all these redefining luxury, what is accessible, what is inaccessible? And this is a question I'm throwing to all of you. Do you think the work that you're doing currently is commercially viable in Africa? Um, so I'll still tell this from a very interesting point of view um, before we check it over. I think there are a lot of countries who are willing to pour a lot of investment into Africa in general. I think there is a lot of money in the luxury sectors, in the technical sector, but they're kind of um, a bit apprehensive to do that because there's always like this socio-political uh, commentary that goes around the, the continent. The idea of if I give you $100,000 today, how do I know that it's, there's not going to be an uprising or an economic crash and then wh what happens to my money? So there's been this interesting kind of push for tech, for luxury goods, for a lot of things that Africa wasn't really in the conversation with for the longest time, because now it's like Africa has kind of become the final frontier for innovation. Because I think if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. If you can push product out in a country that doesn't always have internet or electricity, then that proof of work kind of goes further, opposed to other countries who are like, well, we have all the the benefits of a stable infrastructure country and we still can't meet deadlines or we still can't deliver. So I think that there is an opportunity for what we do to be commercially viable in this kind of innovation space, in tech, in fashion, in in telling indigenous stories. But I, do, I, I don't think it's an easy route, let me put it that way, because uh, welcome to the, the country where you kind of have to prove that you can do the job before they let you do the job which means you've got to expend time and resources and, and get those connections to eventually land the contract. So I think, yes, commercially viable, easy, not yet. Yeah, I find that so interesting. I was having a similar conversation on, on, on a different radio station about how when we speak about tech in Africa, it always needs to be addressing the most extreme situations. Like we can never speak of tech in Africa for the sake of tech, for the sake of convenience, we always need to be using tech to address some social, some social issues. So that's another thing I love about this conversation is because we're like expanding our ideas on how we can apply different types of technologies in the African context, you know. But let me pass the mic over to uh, Lesiba or Siviwe. Do you guys think the work you're doing is commercially viable in Africa? So I think for my work, I kind of look at it more as creating creating uh, creative resource material. So I, I don't view it as being commercially viable just because I think of the, the work I'm doing as resource material. And if we're speaking about information being free and accessible, then I wonder like where commercial 
sits in relation to that. I feel like it's counterproductive to open access if we're going to speak about commercially viable. And then again, I kind of feel like sometimes when it comes to resource sort of work, like Luke was saying, you really need to to bark up some serious trees and prove a lot of other points and maybe do some fluffier stuff before people can say, yes, yeah, sure, I'll invest in something that is more information-driven and might be a little bit niche um, because we're because I'm focusing on cost up people. So I don't I don't know if if like I don't think my particular place of work is commercially viable. I don't know if I would want it to be commercially viable, but I also feel like it should be because get the more money that is invested in what we're doing. And I remember when Usisha and myself would talk about Tosi during the Design Future Labs process, when we spoke about the concept, and this was a concept that began with trying to translate an ice cream container, Uola, into an archive. Because in our homes, in Black homes, an ice cream container is a form of archive. It is a form of storing information and tidbits that are important to that home. When you're looking at a concept like that, you can turn it into a commercially viable something that can be invested in. And you can still attach the resource element to it. But I think I think it's about finding the fine line because then there's always that fine line between, you know, meeting commercial commercial viable elements within your your makings of the work and then potentially crossing over into being a little bit gimmicky um, which was something we faced while working on our project while thinking through the project it was really about considering you know how much of what are we putting into this this 3d animated ar app how much of it is a little bit too gimmicky how much of it is a little bit too selling off our culture for the sake of getting enough audiences, potentially getting the next sponsor to see us, potentially, potentially. So yeah, I think from my end, from a resource end, there's a constant battle in trying to determine where that line is and and how you draw that line personally, because the, the money won't draw the line for you. You need to kind of arrive having already understood what your parameters are, where you're willing to go and where you're not willing to go. And then maybe even sacrificing on some of the big open call monies for the sake of the work maintaining its primary objective. And that is to become a resource for Black people, for anybody who's been added, whose histories don't get to be publicly hosted, whose histories aren't freely accessible to them. Yeah, I think a bit of both on my my answer is that i guess as a brand i'm not necessarily the most commercial brand so i was actually speaking to a, a fashion critic yesterday um modupe and i was telling i was asking cuz i was consulting her with regards to my brand and how it's always kind of perceived as oh my god artistic or some item that you wore for like some special event and I'm in the process of releasing a, a, a range um, that I felt feel like it's more commercially viable and how you know you always have to kind of like no matter how nice the story is you have to always make things simpler for people that you know especially if you're trying to make things mass market so I think as a 
brand. I'm still quite in that space of being, you know, a very niche area in terms of how people accept my clothes as it currently is. But as far as the AR resource goes, yes. And I feel like fashion brands are already jumping on to, you know, the 3D modeling or the augmented reality technologies to sell the they clothes more and i think this is the thing about capitalism is that you know the gimmicks work for some people but the gimmicks work to kind of push the whole tech forward because now it's like you kind of you know as developers you kind of get an inkling of an idea that hey there actually is a market in here for instance when i was at school you know you only knew that you were going to draw clothes you know, really for like school purposes. But then you got into the real world and you realized that being able to draw well is not a determinator of how well you will be a designer. You can draw well, but you, you're you not necessarily a good designer by how well you draw. Now Sning Ning 2020 comes and now there's like a whole wing of, you know, new interest in fashion illustration and show studios kind of doing this whole fashion illustration thing and now the metaverse is there and you know so it's a whole you know re sort of emergence of fashion illustration and I guess the original purpose was to kind of make sure that designers can convey their ideas a lot more easier and sell their works a lot more in a very in in much more of an aesthetically pleasing way, so that their customers can see the clothes before the advent of magazines and and so that area I think is happening and is certainly there as a commercially viable thing because I feel as though if you're creating a resource that one can help you see the item in your immediate environment, but then secondly, and this is the next iteration of Butu that we want one to be able to allow you to wear the garment itself before you actually put an order and that order comes to me and says okay this person wants it and then i must cut it there's definitely scope for it to be mass marketed and become um, a commercially viable product but now the thing is i guess for us is, is, is always and currently the issue of tech which is why we've also kind of like held back on some of the you know the aspects of our program that we wanted to release like ar we felt that maybe ar in the in in the field of you know digital fittings is not quite as advanced as we would like it to be um for example my i got a free i got a opal for a christmas present last year and then i felt it was like the most up-to-date phone that i had had until recently and then in testing phase of this AR, I found that Google doesn't, Google Play does not allow my Oppo phone to to view AR or there's some sort of function in Google Play that doesn't allow me to use AR. And so even now you think you've got the latest phone, but it's not really the latest phone. And I don't know how, how much that has to do with Huawei and, you know, this tech wars that happen on a regular. So... There's all that issue that we kind of have. But also, it's self-perceptions. It's like you think about, I think about how when we developed that program and then how a few months later, Yeezy Gap kind of came out 
And it almost kind of looked like what we were trying to do in terms of the whole like 3D modeling and presenting 3D models as, as, as a way of presenting a new range and so on and so forth. So you wonder whether we are also ready to accept ourselves as being ahead of the curve, as opposed to as Luke says, is always waiting for someone or someone has to kind of give you the go ahead clearly they have no no idea what um, experience means but somehow you have to kind of display that you have that skill without even getting the go-ahead yet so i don't know it's 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 a mixture of certain things about whether things are commercially viable or not i think also from the continent we need to be ready to just kind of like go with experimenting and going back to what gaming is all about play so that we are able to kind of like be the leaders in whatever we're trying to create. I just want to chime in quickly on on the one last part to commercially viable, and maybe it might speak to Elizabeth as well. But from a resource side, another dilemma is, especially when, when we are writing, there's a paper I came across earlier, for Black folks, you know, we're taking a lot of inspiration from our cultures, and there's the whole stigma of our culture's being sacred and this whole idea that you know certain things shouldn't be made public having to balance this idea of sacredness which is a little bit of a haha factor for me because yeah, the more I keep digging for for information and I, the more I keep finding academic papers from 19 footsec guys like the more I realize we've written about ourselves before. Some of uh, some of the writers being black and some, of course, being European. There are elements of our cultures that actually exist publicly. And so I end up wanting to ask who came up with this whole idea of sacredness. Like who said who said that, you know, our culture is so sacred that really there's only so much that can be written. But then I come and I disrupt my own my own renegade thoughts and I th- I am reminded of that as much as this Afro-present generation of creators, we want to put our stories forward, especially because there are a lot of these institutions opening up funding for new material because Africa is the new you know place of inspiration. There's all of that thing to consider of who are you selling the story to? And I use selling intentionally because to some degree there's an element of selling the story to someone. There's a that open call is the price tag for you to <laughs> for you to match up with your creativity um, and for you to extract as much of your own story in order to match up the requirements of that open call. There's that also to consider and I think that it's maybe I want to lean into Lesiba's words, potentially as as Africans, dispelling notions of sacredness or really thinking about what what is sacred? Who who defined sacred? What were they calling sacred? Why were they calling it sacred? And is it still sacred now? And if it is sacred, then maybe it's a matter of the institutions or the spaces that are available. Who are we going to for funding? You know, I've got moments of kind of like being in tension with some institutions because now, and again, this came from the play where you intentionally think about, okay, well, for this open call, I'll give them the bubblegum version of the thing that I really wanted to do. That's got all the substance that 
if it was maybe funded by another Black person who has strong ties to what, 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 then the story would maybe be coming out in its full authentic voice. So yeah, that's that's something that makes commercial value from a resource perspective quite a, a stressful, <laughs> I think stressful is the better word, stressful topic and stressful thinking space for me. Yeah, I think I love the concept you draw on around like what is sacred, why was it sacred, you know? And I think we can also uh, bring that over to uh, to concepts around extended realities. Think of it as this, inex- a lot of people rather think of it as this inaccessible concept where you need to have studied computer sciences and, 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 and. But I think having this diverse panel shows that it's anybody's game, you know. But in the interest of time, I'd like each of you to give advice to any artist or individual looking to get into immersive tech and also as you wrap up with your closing remarks tell the listeners where they can see your work and how they can get in touch with you so um i'm on instagram my handle is quite perfect it's 00.sj00 <laughs> so you can stalk me on instagram or another place would be to look at the Afri Digital Instagram account, um, because what you see there is its own kind of like portal to some of my own work, or it speaks, you know, on the other side of the road to what my work does. So those are the two spaces where potentially you could look at to find my work. And then what I would say, dude, trial and error, man. Just hold your nose, dive in, trial and error. Um, there's there's no formula. There's no... I, th- I feel like, let's see if I might answer this best, because I'm literally winging what I'm doing. Um, and I think I'm winging it from a practical side, but I'm not winging it because I'm speaking about my life. I draw from conversations with my mother. Um, I've I've turned my everyday into my research center, you know, conversations with my mother, going outside into the garden, watching my child play, going to Islalin for Umsebenzi for my grandfather. Those, those everyday things, the things that in our Black modernist ways we've abandoned are the things that I've returned to. And those things that I've returned to have given me enough to to work. Um, And I guess I'm lucky that I'm going backwards and going backwards is the in thing. It's tragic, but I have to word it that way. Um, because it makes it it almost makes blackness feel like it's a trend. It almost makes like our cultures are just trend worthy. And I'm honestly hoping that we get away from that idea um, and that we don't equate going back as being a trend, right? Because get it shouldn't be. It, understanding yourself, revisiting home shouldn't be a trend. It should be just in us constantly. Um, so yeah. I think I, that's my advice. Go go back to basics. Go back to basics and you will discover everything that people have been wanting to invest in on decolonizing the archive and the questions around knowledge. 
where he writes about, so he's writing about the importance of decolonizing knowledge. And he, he basically says how by decolonizing the archives, we really begin to switch up that, that hard written thinking around creativity, around, around what is deemed as intellectual material. Um, because that hardwired Western thinking has made everything repetitive. And he's right. If we all go backwards, like Ulasiva is doing, we begin to craft newness. And newness from a place that was always there, it just hadn't been tapped into for a very long time. I would say we're all winging it. Hundred <laughs> percent. Haven't stopped. <laughs> and I feel like if you have any sort of interdisciplinary in your title, you are certainly winging it as an artist. You are kind of just like, yeah, I think this is the world that we kind of lived with. We live in with this the the sort of archetype of striking when the opportunity strikes. So in many ways, it's when you think about, when I think about it for myself as an artist, you know, I can really paint it in many different ways. And like, uh, you know, um, as I painted it the other day, it's the refusal to be mediocre or whatever it is. But it's like, it's, it's, it's also just being okay with newness. But it's also like, as I say, I'm trying to get back to the whole aspect of how we've existed as artists and maybe existed as artists in South Africa is, you know, you find yourself having to kind of like open yourself to so many different challenges and aspects of uh, or or ways to kind of push your product or your, 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 your project, either by sheer interest or via the promise of money, the hustle. And so in many ways, I would like to believe a lot of my upbringing influenced my, 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 my projects now in the digital arts. From my days learning, um, I never knew that learning would get me to this point where, you know, I, I actually had maybe an above normal interest in computers sort of anything to do with computers. I just didn't do computer science because I wasn't that much of a nerd. But I realized that I was maybe a little bit more interested than my classmates uh, when I was giving, um, when I was helping the CAD teacher um, um, with the other students in in the classroom. I was like that person that was asked to do that. Um, And that I got put, it put, or rather I put it away for a while. And I remember one of my classmates was like, you know, it's funny, I don't see you as a fashion designer. And I'm like, what do you see? And this is like, I, I thought you'd be some sort of like, I don't know, CEO or whatever it is or something else in that sort of arena. Um, but maybe it's coming home a bit now that, you know, I find myself experimenting with VR a little bit. And that was just kind of just reading, you know, of the theory about the issues of displaying performance art on a flat screen um, and issues of phenomenology and all those deep theoretical issues that made me think about, well, what if you immersed someone right into the whole experience? You know, like at least the layers are being stripped back. Um, But then also, it's also linked to, you know, I'm 
in a group show next week and I want to really show something that's groundbreaking and how crazy would it be to have just a white um, plinth with goggles that overheat every five minutes. <laughs> so it's like, it's, 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 it's just maybe that little bit of inquiry mixed with a little bit of hustle mixed with a little bit of like, um, you know, just hustle, you know, I guess. Um, but also just, just, yeah, just not necessarily kind of ascribing to the idea of Africanness um, or, or, or this idea of sacredness that maybe C. Viva speaks about a bit in that, you know, we can push things forward. And that's how those traditions became traditions because they germinated from another tradition. And if we don't do that, nothing moves forward. Um, so yeah, that's, that's just maybe one of the things that I kind of work with or my thought processes, but it's always also, you know, I always go back to the most simple idea. If, you know, if we turned everything black and white, you know, if there was no, um, prints, if there was no color, what are we left with? And maybe that's kind of the, a core aspect to kind of thinking about other projects into not always thinking about things in a traditional manner but also because I'm also I find myself in this liminal space of being an artist and a fashion designer and now reluctantly an academic it's like I am forced to always find new ways to do things and I I can draw I can paint but I don't find myself doing that and it's it's maybe it's something internal but it's also something that I've kind of thrust myself into uh, somewhat of a polymath maybe but yeah um, but yeah if you guys want to see a little bit more of my work if you want to see a little bit more of my work you can catch up with a lot of my fashion based work on at Lesima Mitella Studio um, that as it is on, on, on Instagram um, a little bit maybe more of my artistic work um, souvenirs underscore off underscore conflict on Instagram. And then if you want to kind of just see everything in one place, lesimovitella.com. Um, and as viewers mentioned already, digital online, if you want to see it on the website or afri underscore digital, just a little bit of, you know, a kind of a home where basically all this work kind of stays or is academically or critically discussed and the communities of other people who do similar things. I am quite the adamant follower of uh, Souvenirs of Conflict, just by the way. <laughs> it's how I keep up to date with all your work, Lesiba. Um, You can find me Instagram, Hero Entertainment 58 But um, to be honest, if you want to find out what I'm doing in more of the game dev space, probably find me on LinkedIn. Um, I do a lot of um, devlogs and screenshots of the kind of game-making process in and around that. And I think, kind of to echo what everyone else is saying here, yeah, you just kind of got to do it, right? And... You, you you just need to find a way to not to not say no to yourself before somebody you like I, I'm always in this kind of space where I'm like I'm, I'm afraid to tell people that I'm a game designer I'm, a t I'm afraid to tell people that I'm a self-taught developer and I'm, or I'm afraid to share what I'm working on um just because I just think it's not good enough or somebody will be like okay no so then there's this idea of well then we're all in our own way right if we want to make the if we never show the world what we're working on and our and what we've been like passionately building uh, and we never share it, then 
if we die with it, then it's the best kept secret. And that's a bit grim, but it's always this idea of, I think a lot of creatives are kind of, kind of have this imposter syndrome where they stand in their own way. So as much as everyone's like, oh, just do it, just go right ahead. Um, you kind of need to step out of your, your own way to do that. And I really think that that's kind of the, the work that I want to share. And a, a quote that I once shared my mates, I was working on an augmented reality puzzle game. And the idea that you have a bag of puzzles and your friend has a bag of puzzles and then there's a timer and then the first person to solve the puzzle, like it plays an attack animation. And my mate looked at this and he was like, dude, you build weird games. <laughs> I was like, yeah, it's an augmented reality battling card game. And he goes, no, that's good that it's weird because it's otherwise it's boring. You know, it's the same like everything else. And it's harder to explain it to everyone. But I mean, that was the demo that won me MTN of the year for best gaming solution. So to people who say like, yeah, innovate and try get people to understand further down the line. Like, I, I think it's it's the same sentiments for everyone here. Just create, don't be in your own way. Um, and don't think that it's it's as hard as what a lot of people make it out to be, you know. Um, and that's kind of what, what I wanted to say. So, yeah, um, here in Entertainment 58 is kind of where I keep a, a lot of my mobile dev work, my AR dev work to, to showcase that. But otherwise, if you're if you're keen on the design process or have any cool ideas, actually, I'm also really keen to chat about anyone developing anything in the immersive tech space or in the gaming space in South Africa. Just message me on LinkedIn and we'll chat. But uh, yeah, team, great to meet some fellow creatives here. Creative technologists, that's the word I learned. Creative technologists. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. creative technologists. I love that word. It's more yeah. inclusive, you know. Um, but thank you so much, everyone, for... Um, coming onto the platform, sharing your knowledge, your experiences. And I'm pretty sure that this conversation will inspire um, other people who are already or um, planning on getting into the space and becoming creative technologists themselves. And from me, Ian Mangenga, you can get a hold of me on Instagram uh, at Digital Girl Africa. We're also doing a lot of cool stuff over there. But yeah, thank you so much for tuning in and goodbye. Bye. Bye.